I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. So said the novelist Ursula Le Guin on receiving a prestigious award, the Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in 2014. She argued passionately in her acceptance speech for the role of writing and the imagination in solving the problems of society, which writers have always sought to do in a multitude of ways. Today, we will discuss two subgenres, at least, of these attempts to reimagine the future, cyberpunk and solarpunk. Welcome to The Lead from New Lines magazine. I'm Lydia Wilson and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events and personalities from around the world. I'm joined today by writer, researcher and activist Joey Ayoub, who is currently finishing a PhD on temporality and hauntings in post-war Lebanese cinema at the University of Zurich. And Beirut-based writer and editor J.D. Harlock, editor-at-large at Wasafiri and poetry editor at Solarpunk magazine. Both guests have recently contributed essays to New Lines, JD writing The Rise and Fall of Cyberpunk, detailing how the once edgy genre of cyberpunk was co-opted by the very parts of society it was initially critiquing. JD's essay defines cyberpunk as follows. A portmanteau of cybernetic, the science of replacing human functions with computerised ones, and punk, the sensibilities of the counterculture youth movement of that time. The term was coined back in 1983 by writer Bruce Bethke, but the dystopian sci-fi approach soon became mainstream, perhaps made most famous by the movie Blade Runner. Many other punk aesthetics followed, including steampunk, a vision of society going back to the 19th century age of steam, and the more recent solarpunk, another approach for fiction dealing with the present by radically reimagining the future. This was the subject of an essay by Joey Ayoub. In his words, solar punk is a literary and art movement which imagines what the future could look like if the human species were actually to succeed in solving the major challenges associated with global warming. Joey, JD, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay, so let's start by going right back to the origins of all these aesthetic punk movements, which was cyberpunk. JD, can you explain a little what differentiated this uh, subgenre from other science fiction around at the time? Well, one thing one thing that's still unique about cyberpunk is its focus on the social aspect of science fiction. Generally, you can categorize sci-fi into three major categories, and c- c- cyberpunk was unique in that even though it dealt with cutting-edge technology, it really focused on the high-tech low life aspect and the societal decay taking place that they that writers predicted would take place at the time so what was it responding to in other words why did people feel it was necessary to have another genre so when we think about the future we tend to think of what cyberpunk tells us uh, rain gloomy dark cities where everything's decaying societal decay that kind of stuff and we assume that's the de facto vision that that's what we're supposed to assume. But if you go back to the 40s and 50s and before that, people actually had a positive view of the future. People really had this positive scientism 
in mind and you think of something like the Jetsons when you thought of the future, flying cars, robot servants, that kind of stuff. And cyberpunk, the early cyberpunk writers like William Gibson, they ha- uh, they wanted to change that. They wanted to change how we viewed the future because they didn't think we were heading into a good place. Uh, this came after the 70s, one of the most turbulent times in American politics. And there was a general nihilism in the way people were viewing things, but that still hadn't reached uh, mainstream science fiction yet. You had some images of a dirty future like Star Wars, and Star Wars would be one of the first popular visions of this dirty, decrepit, uh, terrible future. But it wasn't until cyberpunk went mainstream that that became the de facto vision of everything, finally replacing what they were trying to take down, which was this utopian uh, overly utopian vision of the future that you would see in the Jetsons or even Star Trek. Well, it all sounds pretty bleak. <laughs> so, Joey, can we have a little bit more light here? Because <laughs> your essay for New Lines was was called What If We Cancel the Apocalypse, which does sound a lot more rosy somehow. But in a way, there was a similar motivation um, for this subgenre, as with cyberpunk, in terms of reimagining the future in response to current challenges. Would you agree with that much? Yeah, yeah, I would, definitely. I mean, uh, as JD mentioned, I think cyberpunk was responding to a very specific moment in time. If we think of the rosy futurism that JD mentioned, like the Jetsons and that sort of stuff, uh, which were, you know, kind of uh, normal, if we can use that term, at the time with uh, the first man on the moon and that sort of thing. And there was a sort of a sense that things were heading in a good direction, however one would define good, right? Like you would be forgiven to believe that, well, 10 years from now would look better, would feel better, would we would have higher standards of living and so on than today. Um, at some point that shifted. And I think with the many things we don't have to get into them all maybe but you know the advent of neoliberalism the end of history quote unquote uh, to 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 quote from uh, fukuyama francis fukuyama uh, and obviously the advent and at the very least our uh, growing understanding of man-made climate change and so i think at some point in the past decade two decades or so there's been this growing need to have something beyond uh, cyberpunk. Because as JD mentioned, that at some point that became the dominant thing. Cyberpunk used to be, uh, you know, sort of the edgy one, the punk, that's what punk's, uh, punk obviously implies. But at some point it was kind of the the easier thing to think about, the, the easier thing to imagine, let's say. It's very easy today to imagine the apocalypse. Anyone listening to this has like 10 different templates of what the apocalypse can look like. And I think about 10 years ago, so I think that's when, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the first at least compilation of cyberpunk stories, uh, sorry, solarpunk stories uh, were published in Brazil in Portuguese. Uh, One of the editors mentioned that like he's just saw, he and the other writers saw a need to populate the imaginary away from what really feels like and felt like that like 10 years ago and i think today feels even more like we're just oversaturated with uh like dystopian and 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 post-apocalyptic imagery so then how is it different can you actually give some characterization of what a solar punk story is like the easiest way is just uh, to think that quote that jd just mentioned like high tech and low life as being one of the definitions of cyberpunk uh solar punk is high life if when i use it that way 
And when it comes to tech, it's sort of a question mark, i.e. like tech can be high tech can be low tech can be no tech. It depends on what needs are there, usually human needs. But in some stories as well, we're seeing more and more like non-human needs. What are these non-human needs, i.e. the needs of Mother Nature, the needs of non-human animals and so on? What are their needs and how can technology, if at all, serve those needs better? So it's 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 a people cent not people, but it's a society centric approach, if I can put it that way. Well, we'll definitely come back to society. But first, JD, you're the poetry editor for Solar Punk magazine. Can you describe what makes a poem solar punk? I gave a workshop on this recently, and I would say that because of the limitations of poetry, it doesn't need to feature any of the traditional cyber uh, solar punk tropes we usually associate with a genre like wind turbines, community centers, repair cafes, that kind of stuff. It just needs to tackle the themes and sentiment of the genre itself, which is this utopian optimism where humanity has the potential to work through its problems. That doesn't mean we sugarcoat everything. It just means that the solutions are achievable and that if we work properly, if we use science properly, if we don't... Uh, if we value our community and follow through on the promises we make to it, then we can achieve that solar punk vision. So that's usually how we classify uh, solar punk poetry at Solar Punk Magazine, because it would be unrealistic to try and uh, find poetry that fits in with the tr- uh, the tropes we've developed over the last couple of years. And we still don't know what all the tropes are. I mean, the genre hasn't been around, around that long. I think it was first coined in 2014, even though you can find earlier examples that kind of neatly fit into the genre. The genre didn't really start, I think, till like 2014. Oh, so it is very new and maybe those tropes are settling. But I think things are coming out of what you're both saying. And one of those things is 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 values based, right? There are some fundamental values associated with solar punk. It's not just getting to a climate solution, is it, Joey? Wouldn't you say that values to do with community, social justice, equality, and so on are also fundamental to the genre? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I think that one of the main arguments of solar punk, if we can put it that way, is that all of these things are interrelated anyway. That it doesn't doesn't mean much. And I think now the science is increasingly kind of backing that argument up. It doesn't say anything to say we're going to solve climate change, whatever that means, without tackling, uh, you know, human inequalities. Because there is, as we know as a fact now, like a disproportionate influence by the top rich, the richer, you know, the richest countries, the the multinationals, the corporations, and so on, compared to you know the average person, let's say in the Middle East or in Africa or in Asia or Latin America for that matter. So it changes very much, like our impact, the actual contributions that we are making to man-made climate change in in the negative sense, obviously, like the damage that we're causing is not spread out equally. Where we live matters, what we eat, how we travel, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things matter. And so climate change as being man-made can only be resolved in that way, obviously. And so solar punk, in the same way as uh, cyberpunk responded to a real need, as I said before, it was seeing, you know, you can think of the cyberpunk authors as looking at this rosy vision of the future as like just trust in the technology. You don't really need to think about the human aspect of things because that was obviously part of the, you know, techno-solutionist approach, if we can think of it that way, if we can use that term, of the time. Cyberpunk was saying, well, actually, we're not going there. Uh, factually, we're actually going in a, in a much darker future. And Cyberpunk wanted to, you know, show that, you know, actually describe stories in which, you know, you have characters who are in that future 
as a way of saying like let's not go there because that's not a desirable thing to to want to be in and solopunk sees the kind of a response to that in some ways it's, it's i think it's a natural successor in some sense while at the same time being a response to to cyberpunk Oh, well, let's just explore that difference then, that mm -hmm. which we can characterize as dystopian or utopian, basically. Uh, though, Joey, you, you're arguing that it comes from the same place. It's just either the warning of a potential dystopia or a reimagining a utopian um, alternative to where we might be heading. Um, so although I thought this was 180 degrees kind of difference between the two genres, you're, you're making it seem a little bit closer, potentially. Um, but it still brings extremely different challenges aesthetically, because mm -hmm. utopia is kind of famously hard to do well. And I'm going to draw on the late sci-fi author Ian M. Banks uh, for, to, to illustrate this. And his culture series is about an interstellar post-scarcity anarchist utopia, but the actual stories always take place on the edges of it. And he admitted that from a dramatic perspective, utopia simply isn't that interesting. <laughs> Has this been a challenge for Solarpunk, do you think? Is this perhaps why Solarpunk isn't quite so popular or well-known? Um, I mean, I think it would be a challenge regardless of the genre and uh Solopunk is very new, as JD mentioned. I think actually, like, even though you can, yeah, you can trace it to roughly a decade, a bit less than that. You know, the past couple of years, really, with the with the kind of the pandemic, uh, I think, accelerated that saturation, if you want to put it that way, of of these uh, negative futurisms, right? So there are stories that I've read from by like Solopunk or self-described Solopunk authors that I wouldn't describe as amazing, while there are others that I've actually quite liked. And there are other stories as well, like uh, science fiction, you know, short stories or novels that maybe are not like technically solar punk. If you want to be very rigid about definitions, I, I tend to be a bit more flexible usually. But even, even if you want to, maybe they're not solar punk, but I would describe them as having kind of a general or similar spirit, right? Like in trying to change things by understanding that um, by essentially adopting what's kind of uh, what I would call like a prefigurative politics. I, I didn't coin that term, but it told me it just means that you, you want to uh, think of a politics today based on what your vision of the future uh, ideally looks like. So it's kind of the cliche, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, but it's a bit more nuanced than that, or at least a bit more complicated than that. Okay, well, I'd like to ask both of you then about the potential risks there. Um about the risks of framing the future this way. I mean, the whole point of Solarpunk solar is to imagine a future where we've already solved or are seen to be solving the, 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 the problems associated with climate change. And that's supposed to open our minds to the possibility that we can, but does it? Or because it's so utopian, is there a risk of making it feel even more unattainable? JD, is that a risk? I wouldn't think so because usually the tech featured in solar punk stories isn't that advanced. A lot mm -hmm. of the times that's tech that's either that either exists or is within our reach within a couple of years. Uh, the main obstacle isn't technological, which I would say would be what what would be difficult. It's more social and economic. And the the point of solar punk is that it's a radical solution to radical times. And uh, that's probably the biggest obstacle, but I feel like as the situation in the world deteriorates, we're going to be forced into these radical solutions 
uh, whether we're willing to go along with it or not. Because as is, the world can't really continue the way it has been for the last 30 years. Joey, do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, you know, most solo punk stories that I've read are actually very practical, or at least they have that sort of element to their stories, i.e. the technology, as you just mentioned, isn't really that complicated. It's usually very basic stuff. In fact, one of the kind of the, at least one of the common themes that I've, I've noticed at the very least is more like a more equitable redistribution of existing technology. So it's it's not rocket science in that sense. Cyberpunk was more trying to imagine what the future looks like based on, you know, more or less rational um, assumptions. Or you know, you say, oh well, you know, technology looked like that like that way in the 1970s, so it may look that way 100 years from now or from then or whatnot. So it was trying to be rational, but it it had to guess as well. With Solarpunk, for the most part, at least the stories that I've read. It doesn't really feel the need to do that because the, the importance is the present. Where, where the, the argument is that we need to better imagine the future in order to change the present. The argument isn't that we need to escape into these um, imagined futurisms or futurities uh, while doing nothing about the present. I would say that's actually quite contrary to the, the spirit of Solarpunk. Oh, so would you say then that a core aspect of Solarpunk is that it is very much reality based it it's in it, you know and, and that involves a lot of research actual data of the here and now and if this is true is this one way in which solar punk is perhaps more like cyberpunk um jd i would say that the scientific aspect of solar punk isn't that focused on and most of the tech you would see in it is something most people would know from common knowledge or from something mm-hmm. they've seen on twitter or YouTube, I don't think solar punk authors, from what I've seen, put that much effort into research because, again, the focus is on how do we reorganize society so that we can solve all our, all our problems and how would life be like once those problems are solved. And I want to go back to this idea we mentioned before where just because something is utopian doesn't mean there are no problems. Utopia means society's problems have been solved, not your personal problems. And some solar punk stories deal with personal or local conflicts that emerge from a utopian society. So mm. just because every uh, uh, the world's problems have been solved doesn't mean our problems have been solved. But again, that's part of the process of getting there, I suppose, would you say? Some solar punk stories don't exist in a fully realized solar punk utopia usually sometimes it's on a society that's getting there and mm-hmm. it's the conflicts of uh the conflict of how do we f- get get uh, get to that last push where we're on uh, at the solar punk utopia oh. well to return to the sort of opposite way of framing or dealing with the future that that imaginary of the dystopian i mean i've always assumed that cyberpunk was pretty bleak um or, or that's 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 just my own characterization of the whole genre but when your essay came out jd the producer of the podcast tweeted that the underlying fantasy of cyberpunk is actually quite optimistic in that the tools being wielded by the big corporations are used by the heroes to fight back and as he put it that's hacker logic but the problem with the genre now is no one believes that anymore. The internet belongs to four or five big tech companies and the best hackers work for governments or for those companies. Do you think cyberpunk succeeded as critique? I think 
it did because it's become the de facto vision of our future. But I would argue against saying that cyberpunk was optimistic. It's actually probably the most nihilistic of sci-fi genres. The assumptions it makes are not optimistic, but naive. The thing is, a lot of the early cyberpunk authors, they weren't techies. They were people who didn't have a tech background, and they were basically doing research as we would do research. They just read articles and books about the subject and made certain assumptions that didn't end up being true. But I, I wouldn't say it's optimistic uh, because at the end of the day, even though the hackers have the power to fight back against the corporations using the internet, which we do see day to day in real life, uh, they rarely does a cyberpunk story end on a happy ending and rarely does a cyberpunk uh, dystopia end. Like by the end of the story, the characters are still living in a cyberpunk dystopia. And uh, whatever victory they've won is small, personal, and probably won't last long. And that's that comes from the noir influence and the hard-boiled fiction influence on the genre. Because William Gibson, uh, for all his foresight and for his ability to craft this interesting world, his stories at their heart were just uh, tech noirs or uh, hard-boiled fiction in a cyberpunk setting or noirs in a cyberpunk setting or, w- or whatever term you'd like to use for them. I mean, when I asked you if you thought cyberpunk succeeded as critique, you you mentioned how widespread it is, and but I see that as as succeeding as an as in in spreading its aesthetic. I mean, even if you haven't heard the term, you're very likely to have come across the genre, not just Blade Runner, but even even things like RoboCop. Um, but but I want to kind of go back to the idea of it succeeding as critique. Do you think its messages have got through, Joey? The messages of cyberpunk, I mean, um, to some extent, I would suppose so. To be honest with you, I just think that at some point it became a bit too familiar, that it lost a bit its edge. Like the entire point at the beginning, at the very least, was that, you know, at the very least, if if you were uh, the authors promoting it or writing these stories, is that Again, like this, the the future that we think is going in the right direction is not going in that direction. And so I'm going to write a story to show you what I think it could look like. Now, I actually agree with JD's critique of cyberpunk. I don't think it was optimistic for the most part. There is a bit of optimism embedded in some of these stories, you know, kind of like what you mentioned or the, the... they put what the producer mentioned that like the the hero of the story can use the weapons of let's say the corporation or big brother or whatever against 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 the powers that be but usually as jd just mentioned it's not at this it's not like a society-wide level I, you don't quite see the dystopia that they are supposedly fighting against actually being overcome in many ways the the logic of the dystopia, if you want, had already been internalized by the time the heroes, let's say, are fighting the the you know the the bad people or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, do you think either movement has had an actual impact on activism? Would you say cyberpunk? Um, to some extent, yeah, I suppose so. I'm not entirely sure, but I think you you can at least make the argument that saturating our imaginaries with uh, pretty bleak, uh, nihilistic, uh, again, post-apocalyptic, all of those terms that we've been using, uh, futures, doesn't necessarily, I'm not going to say like it stopped activism or it's made things worse. I don't know if I can make that claim because that's probably too simplistic, but I don't quite know if it 
helped. I don't quite know if it made things better because at the very least, if we want to imagine uh, what we want as an alternative to the things that we oppose, we need to literally be imagining it. We need to literally know, like exercise that muscle, so to speak, of what it is. What is this vision that we are fighting for? What is this thing? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Even what does it smell like? You know, what are the colors? What are what are these societies? What do they look like? How does it feel to live in such a society? I think that muscle hasn't really been trained. And to some extent, I do think cyberpunk has filled that void in, in a way that I don't think has in the long term, at the very least, been very beneficial for us. I think Ursula Le Guin would definitely agree with you. You know, that mm-hmm. that's exactly the muscle she's talking about um, in, in the quote I started with. Um, but would you say then that solarpunk has a better chance of influencing our actual futures because it is giving real alternatives rather than rather than giving us the dystopia it, it's it's giving us a chance to work towards something to, to that's a solution yeah i would uh, i have actually one of ursula Le Guin's quotes on my website uh, she said like we live in capitalism its power seems inescapable but then so did the divine right of kings absolutely and, and it's yeah, that great it's that quote by it's been attributed to Frederick Jameson and a bunch of other people. Like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, right? <laughs> and that that's that should be taken very seriously because it is actually easier to do that. And that's at the very least a bizarre thing. Like we can we can at least all argue or all agree, I would hope, that it doesn't seem to be a good thing that we are that it's so easy to imagine the end of the world. Uh, compared to the fact that it's so difficult to imagine the world not ending. And that's something that's that's uh, a challenge. I can think of a book by um, Amitav Ghosh called The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, because for me, solarpunk is a way of making it thinkable, mm. uh, making it thinkable in a day-to-day setting and not just between, you know, so-called activists or climate experts and people who are already probably thinking about it way too much for their own mental health. But actually the redistributing that burden so that it actually becomes easier to do so collectively. I mean, you've both mentioned that solarpunk is an extremely young genre, um, dating it to around 2014, I suppose. Um, but there's also a lot more on the horizon, isn't there? I mean, JD, you've just taken the opportunity to pitch me about lunapunk, a term I'd never heard before. Can you tell us what is lunapunk? So lunar punk, I would say, is a response to solar punk, kind of a natural one because, again, solar, lunar. And on top of the different aesthetic, and it's kind of obvious what the different aesthetic is, like solar punk is built around solar imagery, lunar punk is around lunar imagery. Uh, lunar punk stories are more uh, introspective. They look within. There's a darker edge to them, and they're basically a counterpart to solar punk, a complement to it, where you can get to tell these darker stories in a utopia that have more of a fo- less of a focus on community and more of a focus on the individual. And what do you think the um, different sorts of effects of that kind of driving motivation is on the reader? I think it, again, because solar punk communities are so uh, solar punk stories are so community focused. Um, people might feel like their individuality is being sapped out of them because, again, that's what capitalism um, offers you. It offers you the opportunity to become an individual, quote-unquote. And I feel like 
when when I pitch solarpunk futures to people, they're kind of hesitant because with the end of capitalism, I don't think many of them know how they would define themselves or their existence uh, in the solarpunk utopia. And I think lunar punk is kind of the antidote to that, where you get to see people work out personal introspective problems on how to define themselves in a society like this, more so than you would see in a solarpunk story. Joey, what do you think's next for the punk movement? Well, as we said, like solarpunk is very young. JD just mentioned lunar punk. Lunar punk. I can imagine many, many genres that sort of um, embody the spirit of what solarpunk is trying to do. Right? I mean, in in the essay, I mentioned that solarpunk is in conversation with and can encompass stuff like Afro, Indigenous, disability, queer futurisms, feminism, anarchism, you know, et cetera, et cetera, decolonialism, and so on. But it's not just that, right? Like, this is just the stuff that maybe I thought of in the essay. I think we live in an extremely complicated world, and there will not, there won't be a single punk or a single ism that's going to solve all of them, that's going to fix all of them, that's going to move us forward to like on its own. But I just think solar punk is one of those tools, and I think very likely one of the most effective ones. And you know the the advent of lunar punk, which I do agree with JD. I think I think it's just going to grow and grow more. It's I think in other punks that uh, or other genres as well that I think will come out of uh, out of that spirit. I think it's sort of a testament that at the very least we have this desire, we have this need for different stories in a time where we're being told like to be realistic, quote unquote, is effectively to to adopt what uh, Mark Fisher called capitalist realism, i.e. to accept the reality that there is no such thing, there is no alternative to quote Margaret Thatcher uh, to capitalism, there is no such thing as society to quote her again. Uh, you know, it's actually to say, well, uh, you're wrong. You know, this is not the case. There, there are alternatives, not just the alternatives, but we need those alternatives. The current trajectory we are on, we know for a fact, like for as a scientific fact, is simply not possible to continue. It's not sustainable. Okay, well, to finish then, you both have read, written, edited a lot on solar punk um, and other forms of punk. Have either of you dabbled in writing it yourself? Yes. Yes, I'm a fiction writer, and I've written many cyberpunk and solar punk stories that have been published. I've even written lunar punk stories. One of my short stories will be in the first lunar punk anthology soon. And what are the barriers then to imagining that those futures? So the problem with solar punk is that, again, because conflict is reduced, there aren't that many plot options. So I would say that you have to draw inspiration from slice-of-life fiction. And I find that Japanese slice-of-life fiction, especially in anime and manga, is a great inspiration to writing solar punk stories. Joey, have you written any solar punk? As of now, I've been uh, sticking to non-fiction. So I, I see my role as uh, kind of being the propagandist for solar punk like talking about it from the pulpit you know so to speak and um trying to to make the case for it from like an activist philosophical intellectual whatever term you want to use uh perspective so that that's i'm not very good at writing fiction yet oh well you've done a wonderful job at that today <laughs> jd harlock thank you very much thank you thank you this has been the lead from New Lines magazine. You can find our guests on Twitter at Joey Ayub and at JD underscore Harlock. And you can find both their essays on our website, newlinesmag.com. 
This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you.